You are listening to the FCF Leadership Podcast. This podcast has been created to help you connect and achieve your destiny as a leader. For more information, visit our website at fcf.org. So now you may have already answered this and my brain was probably off processing something else you said. But when it comes, (laughs) I'm bringing this back around to faith and forgiveness. Okay. We've incorporated. Now, let's say that we thought we had, can you forgive the person and still be dealing with the trauma of whatever happened? Absolutely. Or is it, does it go hand in hand? No, the forgiveness is a completely separate piece to restoring emotionally. So you can forgive the person, uh-huh. still be working through the trauma, and be standing in faith. Exactly. Okay. Now here's where a lot this of people... This is what we were talking about on the way here. You bet. Well, here's where a lot of people get stuck, is they will go through the process of saying, I forgive, and they never do the work on their their trauma right. emotions. And so then they have the emotions there, and they're intimidated by it. Well, you're still stuck. I mean, you may have release them from the debt, but you got to work on, you know, restoration of your own heart and soul. Um, So that's where I think people get it uh, upside down as they feel like, gosh, I I thought I forgave them. Why do I have this feeling? Well, those are two different pieces. You can forgive them and still have the feelings. That makes sense. But you'll never be, you know, you'll never come back to normal until you start doing the deep work. One of the things that you talk about in the workshops, and I loved this example. I don't know if it's an example, but this process that you have, like when you're being so hypercritical of yourself. Yes. Because a lot of times when it comes to the trauma, we can be hypercritical of ourselves, of our role. Why did I do this? And it caused me this to happen, you know? But you bring up the example of if you were a If you were a child, would you talk to yourself that way? So important. And I have a friend who lives out of state and she's in therapy and she's very open about the fact that she's in therapy. And that's actually one of the things that her therapist told her to do. So I've been watching her go through this journey over the last year. And she mentioned my therapist suggests that I talk to myself as if I were a six year old girl telling. And it wasn't just like oh, you're gonna be fine. It's she listed out like ten different things. I'm safe. So she'd like imagine herself as a little girl. I'm safe. I'm going to be okay. I'm valued. Like she went through this whole thing and I thought, man, this is just so good. Yeah. Like we've got to remind ourselves, go easy on ourselves. Like Absolutely. treat yourself like you would a child, unless you're mean to children, then don't do that. <laughs> the caveat. <laughs> there are That's some awesome. that aren't nice to kids. Well, can, can I uh, give a, Uh, a little background on that. Yeah, please Um, do. Because when I was much younger, um, you know, I would hear about this inner child thing. And it, to me, was just psycho voodoo. It's just babble. It's just, it's craziness. I mean, mean, I'm a word guy. (laughs) What the, what are you talking, inner (laughs) child? What is that? And uh, for me, what gives me handles to grab hold on is neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And neuroscience opens up a whole new way of thinking about things. Now, I do want to restate that neuroscience is is natural, general revelation to me. Right. And not all of it's good, not all of it's right, not all of it needs to be held on to. Mm-hmm. But anytime that I see something in neuroscience, the science side of that, uh, the technologies we have today, 
are so helpful for understanding various texts of Scripture. So what happens in the brain whenever you are five years old and you encounter a wound, a grief, a loss, your hippocampus, which is a part of the emotional part of the brain, and this is in general, but it, it helps us to uh, understand that the limbic system of the brain has this piece in it, this, this part called the hippocampus, which in practical purposes is just the filing system of all of our grievous memories. And any emotional memory gets locked in there. When you get triggered, like when you gave the illustration earlier uh, about now your husband, that he was talking about he missed home, you went three days, and you were concerned that it was all falling apart. Well, what is that? That is a trigger from the hippocampus files that's associated with a previous pain moment. And now then you're emotionally reacting, not to the present experience, but you're, you're building a whole idea and map system for the way your life will be based on the past. Yeah. When you're a child, this is fascinating. When you're a child, like say five years old, and you encounter an abusive, uh, grievous experience, your hippocampus will lock that memory in with its grief. And it tells your brain, be looking, scanning the horizon for anything that looks similar to this, because you never want that to happen again. When you see something that's even similar, it could be 100 miles over the horizon, when you see something similar to that coming towards you, if you have that wound, you'll go to a heightened awareness, fight, flight, freeze, preparing for a predator to kill you, to have that same experience again. Somebody who's never had that wound, they're going to be uh, maybe uh, elevated to a two or a three out of 10 in the energy ratings. But if you've had that wound, you're going to go to an eight or a nine and it's still 100 miles down the road. Somebody who hadn't had that, they're going to be saying something's on the horizon. Just be aware of it. Not a big deal. Just be aware of it. Well, when you think like that and you know how the brain functions, this is where it's wild. What the brain does is when you were five and you were abused, it takes that memory and locks it in an ego state. An ego state is where you return back to the age of five with only limited to the tools you had when you were five, the emotional maturity you had when you were five. And so you begin to act as though you're a five-year-old rather than a 45-year-old. And so it's so important that when we see uh, neuroscience and what it has offered us and how you reprocess that so that you can begin to see those kind of scanning uh, predatorial things that might be coming to you and now then be able to deal with it by a certain therapeutic exercise on the brain, on the brain, to reprocess that so that you can respond as a 45-year-old now rather than a five-year-old. Is that makes it yeah, so now yeah. the whole child thing has a different perspective mm. so when we would say to somebody see yourself as a child what are we doing we're actually saying you have a lifetime of wounds that have built kind of an onion layering around you mm -hmm. and one layer at a time gets pulled off mm -hmm. what we're saying when we say look at yourself as a child we're saying rip all of the wounds all of the pain all the sorrows and everything that's jaded you to become kind of uh, 
flawed and, and broken in the way that you deal with the world. Let's strip all that off and let's remember you were created in God's image right. and in God's likeness. Let's see you for who God said you are. And now then, can you love that person? Can you lean into that person and say, I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to care for you. Because if we ever saw a six-year-old kid, a five-year-old kid, if we ever saw a child like that, and they were dealing with the stress of some kind of peer community that was rejecting them. Are you kidding? We wouldn't judge them. We wouldn't say, you got to look prettier. You got to be smarter. You got to tough up. You just, you got to be funnier. You got to be smarter. Never. You wouldn't say any of that to a five-year-old. You'd just say, come here. Let me just hold you for a minute. Let me just calm you by loving on you. And yet as humans, we don't do that. And this is the great commandment. The great commandment, which is in essence telling you how to be the most healthy you can be. Love God first with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, that is as about intense as you can get. Mm -hmm. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the sequence is love God, love yourself, love your neighbor. Loving yourself is not narcissism. Loving yourself is I can see who I am in the innocence for who I am uh, as though I don't have any trauma, wounds, griefs, losses, anything that has built this mapping system that I visceral instinctively react to the world. I can see me in the purity of who I am and I can be kind to that person. I can be gracious to that person. So that's where being able to see a, yourself as a child and seeing the, the child of you and being able to nurture you it's going to now then calm the fears that's driving you, and it's going to help you restore to the, to the person that God designed you to be. So good. That's awesome. I, two things I was jumped into my head when you were talking there, and I don't know that they're necessarily related to what you were talking about, but they jumped in my head. One was when in the science of freedom, when you were talking about being transformed yeah. by the renewing of the mind, um, you made the statement that the implication there is deformity. And that hit me so hard. It was like, that to me, that's kind of freeing. <laughs> because there's such expectation, especially as a believer, you know, when we go to the, you know, being new in Christ and, yeah. and we think in new terms. And then, but then we go, but you still have to renew your mind. And we we minimize that yes, so right. to something yeah. that is not a minimal thing. Yeah. Because no matter where you got born again in life, you still lived life. Yes. And yes. so there's still a level of deformation that continues if you aren't addressing things that need to be addressed as you go through. That's so true. Life. Is that accurate? Oh, it's so true. You know, uh, we minimize our trauma. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we have three kinds of, of access points to trauma. All of us have been wounded by three different categories. First, it's Adam's sin. Mm -hmm. When Adam sinned, we, uh, it traumatized all of humanity. And when we're born into a fallen world, we actually just being born engage trauma mm -hmm. just because of Adam's sin. Right. We underestimate the power of that. That's why we have to be born again. That's why we, what we're doing by being born again is releasing ourselves. We're differentiating ourselves from the trauma of what Adam's sin did to mm, us. So good. Then secondly, we are traumatized by perpetrators. 
people who, whether they meant to or not, and whether they uh, accurately perpetrated or we just interpreted that they uh, perpetrated, because our lens is skewed. Mm -hmm. right. Our perception of life skewed because of Adam's sin. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have Adam's sin, then you have perpetrators and your experience of them, and then the choices you make. Mm -hmm. You traumatize yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're aware of that. And that's why sometimes we have such big fear about, well, gosh, if I say something, do something, mm -hmm. I'm going to sabotage my whole life. Mm -hmm. And all three of those traumas are now then built into. So let's take it another step. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, where he deals so much with flesh. Mm -hmm. What is flesh? Why have we hyper-spiritualized the word flesh mm. to be some otherworldly concept? Yeah. What if flesh means well, your flesh, your body, <laughs> mm -hmm. that when you were born into this earth, sin lodged into your brain, the wound, and now then you are operating through an energy pocket that that sin created in you. Mm -hmm. And what sin is about is separation. It's death. And death is not the cessation of existence. It's the separation from intimacy. Mm. Death is the separation from intimacy. I want to drive that so hard good. onto the table. Yes. So when Adam sinned and he, God said, the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. The, the word death, of course, means in dying, you'll die two deaths. And it is literally the separation of intimacy with God. Everything Jesus has done is to restore us to intimacy, to make us seem valuable, worthy. And truly, when you, the Bible says that you're no longer a slave to sin, so you've got two things. You're no longer a slave to sin, but because of Christ, you're now a slave to righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is the supernatural power. It is a gift from God that restores you from the identity of shame, mm -hmm. where you emotionally feel, I fundamentally and organically am not enough. I'm not worthy. And because of that, I've got to perform. I've got to reach religious standards. I've got to do all of these things. When what the gift does is it tells you, no, the love of God's been restored. Intimacy is here. That then drives out fear, and fear is what drives every inordinate behavior. I don't know. Did that was that too much? No, I just <laughs> are we both over here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I get rolling on this, and I get hyped up about it, I love and yet it. I'm not always sure if it's too fast no. for no. people. No, it's my good. issue is I take a you start to talk, and I'm like. Oh, right. And I just go you off trail on, with that. like, wait, but, oh, go back. <laughs> I mean, well, this is what in happens in our workshop. We, ha we do your workshop every Wednesday. This is what happens every morning when we do that. I'm always like, oh, this makes perfect sense over and over and over again. Wow. It really does. Uh, uh, just <laughs> a little side question here. Yeah. Because I don't. I, I struggled for B's. I mean, I worked hard for B's and C's in school. So I, I'm education and, you know, that, no. But, um, so I don't know the science. In the videos, you show the side of a person's brain. Yep. And where the cognitive mm -hmm. area is and the limbic system is. Is that literally the location of it in the brain, the frontal side and then the other yes. side? Yes. So I'm intrigued that the limbic side, the emotional side, is near the ear. 
Actually, no, it's in the center. In it's, the center. It's not on one side. Okay. It looks like it on the graphic, right. but That's it's why in I the was center, asking. internal part okay. of the brain. I thought it was amazing that it was by the ear. I was like, wow, that says something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because everything that we do as humans, everything's driven by something. And most of us never stop to think about what we're driven by. And uh, if you reduce it down to its lowest form, down to its lowest root, uh, you'll find that everything we do is driven by fear or driven by love. And love is not this, you know, concept that I think some people have the idea, you know, maybe they think it's just, you know, hippie flowers and, you know, and just, mm -hmm. you know, a hug. Love is having intimacy yes. through shared experiences that are defined by things like boundaries, differentiation, choice, uh, where I trust, I'm vulnerable, I, I experience life with you, and I love being together, but I also know I'm not you. And I'm free now to let you be you and me be me, and I can love myself in that context. That is love. And everything we do is we're either loving and acting or we're fearful and acting. Now, what's interesting is on this whole topic that, uh, like back to my sexual addiction professional certification to help people who've struggled in so many different deep areas of, of their lives, what we say is that when uh, somebody is, is acting out at the very root, we call it eroticized rage. Now, again, I'm, I love all this material, so sometimes if I need to slow down, just tell me to no, slow down. But this is fascinating for me. Yeah. So eroticized rage is where you weaponize the rage that is internal. So in your limbic system of the brain, you are dealing with rage. Now let's define rage, because this is gonna come back to a biblical text that'll just be like, oh man, that's amazing. The, the idea of rage in psychology, or now what we understand by observing, again, general revelation, understanding uh, different patterns of behavior, rage is defined by a fusion, a fusion of shame, and shame is just where you, no matter what you do, you can't be enough. You can't be seen, you can't be heard, you're not valuable, you're not lovable, you don't belong. That's shame. It is a narrative that is emotionally driving you. So rage is a fusion of shame that I just defined, intersecting with a loss of control in some event or moment or season, fused with panic. So shame, loss of control, and panic. That's rage. So rage doesn't mean you put your fist through a wall, though you can. When the amygdala puts your fist through a wall, the amygdala is fight, flight, freeze. That's the fight component. But it also can rage as in shutting you down and you get depressive. And you begin to no longer engage people you are avoidant, you are trying to keep yourself from the uncomfortable feelings on the inside of you, so you medicate that. 
Well, what we say with eroticized rage is that you have weaponized the rage. The rage is an intensified emotion, and it's your shame. It's your fear, fear that you're not enough. It's your shame of, I don't belong, and I've got to do something to belong. I've got to be more talented. I've got to be funnier. I've got to be quicker. I've got to be smarter. I've got to, I've got to outrun this. So what shame is, is the part of rage that's helping you or, tr- or falsely telling you that you can do something to belong. Then you've got the loss of control. Then you've got panic. Now watch this. In sexual acting out, you have people who have this rumbling of rage on the inside. And because they feel it and it's so uncomfortable, their amygdala fires them up to fight, flight, freeze. And in that moment of neurochemical explosion, they then act out and that weaponizes towards sexual behavior. Now then, let's shift it from sex and let's talk about uh, things related to money. So when somebody is using money to abuse, power up on somebody, you know, if somebody is leveraging their financial resources to manipulate another person, what we call that is the weaponizing of rage now, we call it monetized rage. So you could put this over any profile, you could put it over the way that we eat, uh, the way we manage our food intakes. We could do it with alcohol. You didn't have to read it. <laughs> no. Well, what was funny is he mentioned that, but on the inside I was going, I wish I had something to eat right now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. But again, you know, you look <laughs> at how rage can be monetized. Now watch this. So rage is at the root system of behavior. All maladaptive behavior has rage. And again, you see how the buildup from fear Fear expresses in shame. Shame now has this intersection with loss of control, panic. So you have fear to rage. Does all that make sense? Mm -hmm. Fear to rage. Now watch this. In James chapter 1, James says, don't ever say that you're tempted by God because you can't be tempted by God. And then he says this. You're actually tempted when you're drawn away by your own lusts. You're drawn away by your, not God's lust, not external lust, not the devil's lust, your own mm-hmm. lust. This is in you. Now, the word lust, this is fun for me. The word lust is a Greek word, epithemia, epithymia. And it's two words. Epi means above or on top or centered with. And then thymia is rage. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. So... When you, in, as an example, study psychology, one of the words they use to diagnose somebody is dysthemia. And what that is, is dys means under rage. And it is uh, a diagnosis of depression, where rage is expressing itself in depression. So the Bible uses the word epi, E-P-I, thymia, epithymia. And what it is, is where rage has been rumbling on the inside. Well, how do you deal with the fear that's driving the rage? How do you calm that down so that you can live whole and actually manage the energy of the temptation? So a while back, you interviewed Blaine Bartell. Mm -hmm. Blaine's one of my favorite people. I love Blaine. And Blaine said on your podcast, and you parroted it, Mm -hmm. that he still gets tempted. He had, you know, a lot of sexual issues that he was working through and he struggled around um, and, of course, flamed, flamed out. Mm-hmm. And he, the pain of what he experienced there was something else. Well, now he's eight years sober. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, this is just unbelievable for what he thought could ever happen. Mm -hmm. And he's eight years sober. And he said to you guys, he said, today, I still have temptation, but it doesn't have the power that it Mm -hmm. used to have. Right. And now I can see it, know what it is. And now then I know what to do to be able to not not let it have the power over me. Right. Well, what if we had that experience in every area of our lives, whether it's in dealing with people that we think are against us or whether it's confronting somebody in leadership or whether it's food, whether it's dealing with uh, any kind of, you know, gossip or other temptation. What if, what if we no longer were driven by the power of it? Well, how do you deal with that? Well, it's fear that's driving the rage, and the rage is the volcano that explodes you to maladaptive behavior. So what if you were able to meet that fear? So when fear's there, what do you do? Well, a typical uh, person that maybe I should say my way of dealing with it early on was just to command it to leave in Jesus' name. Right. And it's transactional. Uh But what if, what if I were to say what First John tells us, perfect love cast out fear. What if I were in the moment of temptation, able to learn to look into myself, see that child you were talking about that doesn't have all the wounds and all the destruction, all the grief in it. I could see that child for the innocence that they are. What if I were able to invite Jesus into that moment with me and I was able to love that child, love myself? That love is intimacy, and what's crazy is, is when you do that, it begins to regulate down the amygdala, the fight, flight, freeze, that is actually compelling you to medicate and act out. Mm. Again, did I go too fast? Are you- no, I'm processing it, but part of that is because my mind went to, because you keep referring to intimacy. Yes. And that an initial conversation we had earlier about um you know, sin is separation of intimacy. And it made me think of Adam in the garden Mm -hmm. uh, when he sinned. So good. And they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Mm -hmm. They drew boundaries for the intimacy with the Lord Mm -hmm. immediately. And that's, I don't know why I can't get that out of my head. To me, it's shame. Yeah. It's uh, the clothes were shame clothes. Mm. It's I have to outrun my unworthiness. Right. The first thing they experienced was fear. Mm. Soon as they sinned, they were afraid. And they ran and hung. And then they hid and uh, they sewed themselves fig leaves. I'm interested to know what the fig leaves were for. <laughs> we, you know, we automatically assume it was for, you know, private bits. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. But I wonder, really, what were the fig leaves for? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm serious, you know. I mean, we automatically think because of our understanding and our shame-based mentality right. that they covered up their private parts. Right. How do we know that? But did right. they? We don't. We don't know that that was, I don't know that it was a bikini. What if they made bind- blindfolds? Because yeah. I don't want to see. Well, see, I that's an see. interesting thought. Right? It? I mean, yeah. how do we know? What if they made earmuffs? Well, I, it I don't says they were this. aware they were naked. Yeah. That's true. You would have to bring it back, back to rationale. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Fine. Can't let Sorry me to my... pop your bubble. <laughs> but what, what does naked mean? World. I mean, there's one thing to be physically naked. It's another thing to be psychologically and emotionally yes. naked. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> My brain is tired. I know. I'm telling you, it's 
these are good conversations. And we're just going to cry all the way home again. So <laughs> thanks. Actually, I'm not. I, we're in healthier places than we were before. It's true. When we came because in March. Because of the workshop. Oh, that, because of the workshop. That makes my heart so happy, guys. Much healthier places. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack us on that, but I just, I couldn't help but think about that. You know, especially now that, and I know people hate this conversation. They're tired of it. But the faith and grace thing. Yeah. You know, people are, there's still some polarization on that. and. Right. And the extremes of either, but there's still some relevancy there, and um, I feel like much of Christendom is still defining sin as behavior. Right. Right. But if it's as you just explained it, yeah. of separation of intimacy, the behavior is just a result. result. Yeah. And we're judging people on behavior instead of crying out yeah. to help. Yeah. Yeah. Because the behavior is an outcry of lack of intimacy. So how can I bring you back to that relationship yeah. with Jesus yeah. that you had before you started behaving this way? Yeah. Instead of judging you for your behavior. Yeah. Because I expect more of you. Yeah. You know better. Right. Right. Which is always shaming. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I see sin as when God talks about sin, Suck. I see sin as being something that God says it will destroy your capacity to experience intimacy and it will ultimately destroy you. Mm -hmm. So when the Bible talks about God hating sin, he doesn't hate the sin because he's OCD on rules, obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. It's not because he just loves his rules and by golly, everybody needs to line up. Mm -hmm. It's because God in his infinite wisdom knows that everything that's called a sin is actually a behavioral disorder that will destroy the people that he loves. And because he loves us so intense, uh, intently, um, then when he tells us don't sin, he's saying, what I want to do is prevent you from entering more trauma. Yes. Because when you sin, you open yourself to more trauma. Yes. So uh, the whole idea of grace and, you know, the whole idea of faith, God's not telling us don't sin because I just, you know, I, mm -hmm. I don't want you to embarrass the church community. Right. <laughs> I mean, we have our standards. Uh, too late. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're all, yes. We're doing a great exactly. job. So <laughs> <laughs> That's exact. So, yeah, I see sin that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that, to me, helps me feel that God's on my side of the sin even after I've sinned. So I like to imagine, just by the way, I like to imagine um, that so much of what I face in life is a big pile of poop mm -hmm. that's about, you know, six foot tall mm -hmm. sitting in front of me. And religion tells us that Jesus is on the other side of that six foot pile of poop. Mm. And this pile of poop is what I created. Mm -hmm. And I see religion says Jesus is on the other side of that saying, boy, what are you doing? Why did you, why did you do all this? Mm -hmm. But Christianity, the Bible teaches us, Jesus isn't on the other side of the poop pile. He comes on my side mm -hmm. and he puts his arm around me and says, boy, you got quite a poop pile here. <laughs> now, what are you and I going to do for mm -hmm. the rest of our lives so that we can shovel this stuff out? Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So sin is not intimidating to God. Right. Right. Well, I remember Sherry Howell saying, talking about parenting. Yeah. And she said, we're after heart transformation, not behavior modification. It's powerful. And that struck me so hard because I thought, well, that's Jesus right there. Yeah. You know, he, he wants us transformed, not modifying behavior. Because yeah. if all you're doing is trying to modify behavior, behavior's just going to keep failing. Mm-hmm. White, because heart doesn't change. Yeah. Right. With full of dead men's bones. Yes. Exactly. Go ahead. No, that was it. That was yeah. all I wanted to say about that. I just think that's the same thing that you're saying there. Yeah. Is uh, if we fixate on the pile of poop. Yes. Instead of what Jesus brings to the table. Come on then you're always going to be facing a pile of poop. Yeah, that's so true. Always. Always, yeah. It's amazing how our Christianity has moved from relationally-based intimacy to white-knuckling discipline, that it's all about disciplining ourselves to do what somebody who's transformed would do. Yeah, and it comes from a real intimate place of revelation. Yeah, that comes by the Holy Spirit with yes. the love of God in yes. manifestation. The light bulb comes comes on. Yes. And your heart says yes. And then so true. religion says, really? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, then and then yeah. you question it. Right. Yeah. Instead of saying, really? Yeah. Like we should. <laughs> I, I love it. It's so good, Vicki. <laughs> You have been listening to the FCF Leadership Podcast, where our focus is to help you achieve your destiny as a leader. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, visit our website at fcf.org.